0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, Life Lessons from King David, Turning your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 14 as Dr. Neufeld brings us a message entitled, Trouble in David's House.
1: There are times when we must face consequences, even though God has holy and without reservation forgiven us completely. God only has good designed for penitent sinners. He's concerned that after our sin is erased, we should walk in holiness. It is for that reason that some of us wonder why it is then that God allows us to deal with the consequences of our sin and doesn't take them away. You know, I could give countless examples I know a man who murdered his family. Do you think he can be forgiven? Do you think the consequences of that act is ever taken away that is in this life? You know, I know of people who have committed crimes that have truly and humbly repented, and yet they're in prison. I know of people who have cheated on their spouse and the damage carries on. Their marriage has not been healed. Their children are harmed even while their slate before God is clean. What do we make of such things? Is forgiveness complete when consequences linger? And that's what I want to speak about today. It's about wonderful and glorious forgiveness, and at the same time, the nature of the consequences that we need to deal with. You know, when we last left the discussion of King David, we saw him as a genuinely remorseful man. He had committed adultery, he had deceived, and he was responsible for the death of Uriah the Hittite. I mean, these things are undeniable, and yet, in glorious grace, God announced that he put away David's sin. I mean, we who know the rest of the story know why that is possible. 1,000 years later, Jesus would hang suffering and bleeding for David's sin. Jesus was crushed so that David could live. Yeah, but still, there are consequences that David would have to walk through. And one of those you know, is announced in 2 Samuel 12, verse 11, where it says, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And... And before we go on, I think we need to stop and ask how God can say he's going to raise up evil. You know, 1 John 3 verse 5 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Or 1 John 1 5 says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. I could go on and on. God is never the author of evil neither did evil originate in him. But the Bible is full of examples of how evil can and does serve God's purposes. Genesis 50 verse 20, Joseph tells his brothers, You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Judges 14 verse 4 tells us that Samson's marriage, which, which was against the will of God, he married a Philistine woman, that this marriage was of the Lord. For Samuel 2.25 tells us of Eli's disobedient and sinful sons. And it says, But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Well, I could go on and on with those kinds of examples. See, later in 2 Samuel 22, verse 1, we will read that the Lord incited David to take a census of Israel, something that was not to have been done. Well, in all of those examples, we do well to remember that evil does not originate in God. See, our text in 2 Samuel 12, does not say that God would create evil in David's house. It says he would raise it up. That is, God would allow the evil that already existed in the hearts of some of David's children to be raised or, I guess, to be elevated or, or allowed to take a place of prominence. God had decided that he would not stop this evil from occurring. Well, Why? had David not been forgiven. Well, yes, we've said he has, but but God would use the evil in order not just to shape David's heart and the hearts of his family, but also he would use this to teach all of us who are later to read this and find what evil actually is. And so David will be made to feel the destructive power of his own sin. And my sense of this is that this occurs because David's children have seen their own father's sin, and they're now emboldened in their own sin. Well, let's start to read 2 Samuel 13one 2 Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, at the outset, these words really do sound shocking, don't they? This is the story of incest. But well, before we get into that, let's see if we can identify the people who are involved. The first person is Absalom and he's going to play a major role in the future. If you want to do your own Bible study and find out about David's family, well, go all the way back to 2 Samuel 3, 2-5 and there you'd find out that Absalom is the third of David's sons. Absalom's mother was named Ma'akah, and she was the daughter of the king of Geshur. And Geshur would have been on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in the time of Jesus. It was called the Decapolis. You know, David married Absalom's mother, no doubt, to form some kind of a political alliance with the Geshurites. And so Absalom had royal blood on both sides, father and mother. And from what we're going to learn about him, he acts like he knows it, and he's not a man to be trifled with. The next actor in our story is Tamar, Absalom's full sister, also with royal blood on both sides. She is said to be beautiful, which shouldn't surprise us. We are told that Absalom himself is quite striking in appearance, and we'd have to believe that their mother was also quite beautiful herself. These were the beautiful kids in the family. Well, the next actor is Amnon, and Amnon is the oldest of David's sons, so we'd have to assume that Amnon is in line for the throne, so As we're going to see, this will be the clash of some very entitled people. The story begins with Amnon being tormented because of his desire for his half sister. So we see in Amnon that which we saw in his father. He has forbidden lust, and he's in no mood to place it or bring it under the grace of God. He focuses on the lust, he focuses on the thing that he can't have, and in all his thinking, he directs it towards his lust. Next in our story is a man by the name of Jonadab. We're going to later learn that Jonadab is Amnon's cousin. Jonadab's father is David's brother. You know, the Bible describes him as a crafty man. That's not a compliment. It means he's a schemer, he's shrewd, and he's a man lacking in morals. That's the kind of man that Amnon has allowed into his life. And Jonadab counsels Amnon to pretend to be sick and then to request from his father David that Tamar should be called upon to serve him. And of course, he gets his way. And so according to the arrangement, Amnon has Tamar alone in his bedroom. She's brought him food to eat. So Second Samuel thirteen eleven of 14 says, But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. You know, what seems incredible to me in this story is that Tamar seems quite willing to become Amnon's wife, so let's stop and consider that. Marrying one's half-sister, I mean, that was done in Egypt among the royalty, but how about in Israel? Well, we know that Abraham did marry his half-sister, but please remember, that was at a time before the law of God had been given. And furthermore, we might argue that in earlier times, before you know genetic abnormalities had become so rooted in the human race, the effects of such a union would not be as profound as we find it now. But we do know that the law changed all of that. Leviticus 18 verse 9 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. See, Leviticus 18 contains a list of prohibited sexual relationships. Sex with your half-sister was definitely not on. We also know that David was quite familiar with the law of God was Tamar telling the truth when she told Amnon, just ask for us to be married and dad is going to permit it. You know, it's hard to know the answer to that, but we do know that Amnon was having none of it. A rape was considered an outrageous thing in Israel. That's because the law demanded the stoning of a rapist. But then again, the law also demanded the death penalty for murder. And Amnon could clearly see that his father was not prosecuted for his own murder. So why was he in danger? I mean, seems like royalty could sin with impunity. 2 Samuel 13, 15 to 17. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. It's a funny thing, this thing called lust. After being satisfied, Amnon feels disgust, most likely for himself, but Tamar becomes the object of it. He's violated her twice now.
0: As God's children, we praise our Heavenly Father who overflows with love and grace. Not only did He create us and sacrifice His one and only Son for our redemption, but He longs for intimacy with His people. And prayer is an essential tool for growing relationships with Christ. But for so many of us, prayer remains a discipline in need of deepening. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada, is offering a booklet entitled 30 Days of Prayer, A Season of Conversation with God. Within its pages are 30 prayers, hand-selected by Dr. John, to reflect on in your quiet moments before God. It's not an instruction manual, but actual prayers intended to be used as a meditation. To request your free copy today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible
1: no sin is without consequences. You know, I've tried to stress this inescapable truth. You know, Adam and Eve sinned, and then their son Cain murdered his brother. David sinned, and his son Absalom would murder his brother Amnon. Tamar has left Amnon's bedroom. She's been raped. She's painfully distraught. She's weeping so that her full brother, Absalom, hears about it. You know, all that Absalom says to Tamar is, don't take it to heart. But now he bears a deep hatred for his half-brother, and it's a murderous hatred. You know, we're told that David heard of the rape, and he's very angry, but the Bible tells us no more than that. What did David actually do? See, according to Leviticus 20, verse 17, at the least, Amnon should have been cut off from the people of Israel. He would have been removed from being heir to the throne and forced to take up residence in another land and never allowed back. But David's not that angry. Perhaps he's remembering his own sin, but if he is, he's certainly not protecting his daughter and he's not protecting the people of Israel. David is losing his moral edge and it will cost him a great deal. Nathan's prophecy is about to be fulfilled. It's interesting to read 2 Samuel 13, 23. It says, after two full years... Absalom had sheep shearers in Balhazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Well, of course, this is a ruse in which Absalom is planning to murder his half-brother and the heir to the throne for raping his sister. But what captures my attention here are the words, after two full years. Absalom has watched his words and has given Ammon no reason to be suspicious, but in two years, his hatred has not abated. It would seem that Balhatzor was most likely the name of Absalom's estate, and that feasting and a holiday, that was a normal activity for sheep shearers, and so it looks like nothing suspicious is going on. At first, Absalom asks his father if both his father and the servants can come to the annual celebration, and the king says, no, but Absalom asks for Amnon to come as the heir of the throne, he would be honored. And in the end, the king lets all his sons go. Second Samuel thirteen, twenty-eight to twenty-nine says, Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. You know, at first, because of the confusion of the events, news comes back to David that Absalom has killed all of the king's sons. And if that had been true, that would mean that Absalom had been angling to become Israel's next king. Indeed, David seems to believe it, for he tears his garments and lays down on the earth. But now Jonadab, that shrewd and cunning and crafty man, is back. Verses 32 and 33. But Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Here's a question. How does Jonadab know all of that? I mean, the text never tells us, but we have to believe that Jonadab knows because in some fashion, Absalom must have told him something. See, that's the thing with unethical, highly intelligent, and shrewd people. They love to play both sides of a dispute. One has to wonder, given the counsel that Jonadab gave to Amnon, what counsel he gave to Absalom. Clearly, he seems like a man who would exploit division and then, in the end, make sure that when the last gun had been fired, he's still standing on the field. And here he is at the king's side, counseling the king. Oh, he does seem to have gained influence. And David's house now looks like a house of intrigue and deceit. You have to wonder who else is plotting something. Absalom, it would seem, had already planned his next move. Verse 37 says he's fled and went to Telmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. Now, in case you missed that, that's his mother's father or Absalom's grandfather. I mean, clearly Absalom feels affinity with his Geshurite lineage, and he knows he's gonna be protected there. You know, I wonder about his mother's role in all of this. How divided is the family now? You know, how's David doing during this time? Is he grieving a family that knows nothing of the purity and passion that once guided his footsteps? Is his house of wives and concubines, children vying for each other for power and passion and lust? I mean, has all this taken the place of holiness and sacrifice? Is this what David thought when he fled Saul? Is this what he would have imagined on the day that Samuel came to his house and anointed him as the next king of Israel and a man after God's own heart? You know, we don't know all of David's thoughts, but we can read about one of them, verses 38 and 39. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, that's all our text tells us, and we're left to wonder what must have occurred during those three years. The phrase that David longed to go to Absalom means that David ceased to go after Absalom. That means that for some time he was obviously trying to get him. Now, we have to imagine that David was at first trying to demand that King Telmai surrender his grandson, but he refused. Then David would have tried other means and they would have failed and eventually just stopped. Amnon, David's firstborn son, was deeply loved by David. But it must also be clear that he himself was culpable in the death of his son. I mean, what had he done when Amnon had raped his sister? I mean, David was angry, but he did little. And by doing little, he had allowed bitterness and rancor and even murder to exist in his household. So we have to wonder if David ever tied these events to his own murder of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah had been innocent, yet David had him killed. And his son Amnon had been guilty, and yet David had let him go free. You know, eventually, David's soul begins to be at peace. Uriah has died. The unborn child he had with Bathsheba has died. Amnon, his firstborn son, has died. The consequences of sin are overwhelming. But given this point in time, his soul somehow becomes still before God. Amnon isn't coming back. 2 Samuel 14 is a chapter of intrigue. You know, Joab, David's general, the commander of his forces, seeks to bring Absalom home. You know, we don't know all the reasons, but lest we think they are only negative reasons, chapter 14 begins with a statement that Joab knew how much the king's heart longed for Absalom, and so he devises a plot to bring Absalom home. We won't get into everything he does, but we see here how Joab also manipulates David to bring Absalom home without consequences. Again, as we've seen, all the actors in this drama don't seem to understand that their manipulative ways are destroying the king's household and the nation. You know, in time, David does acquiesce and Joab goes and brings Absalom home. And David, however, seems aware that things are far too easy. So he refuses to see Absalom. And now, for the second time, we see the results of Absalom's anger. Absalom now lives in Jerusalem for two years and never sees his father, the king. Joab won't see him either, and eventually Absalom burns Joab's field down. That seems to move stuff forward, and Joab acts again and makes sure that Absalom can now go before the king. And so now, five years after murdering his brother, Absalom approaches King David and bows in his presence, and David reaches out his hand and kisses his son. Perhaps it was at this time that David imagined that the consequences that he had felt for his own sin would eventually come to an end, but they weren't going to. David does not now know that Absalom is not only ready to murder his brother, he's also ready to murder his father. Like before, Absalom was a master of not making his feelings known. No one knew what was going on inside. See, we need to come to terms with our sin and its consequences. You know, if you've sinned and deeply hurt others and perhaps even wounded your own church, you might wonder when the pain of the consequences of what you've done will ever go away. The answer is that in eternity, God will surely wash away every tear from your eyes. It's because he loves you. The only reason he's allowed this to happen to you is is not to punish you. Rather, he seeks to shape you so that you might have the greatest joy in eternity. Just like David... No one will ever say of your sin, it didn't mean that much. But also, just like David, no one will ever say, God won't use this for your good and for his glory. You know, David emerges from this drama as the man whom God has still chosen to bless. By the time he gets to his end of his life, he will say to God, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And they had. God was still there to bless the king. It's good for us to hear these things, especially for those of us who are still lamenting because of our own sin. Don't you ever believe that God won't change the things that you're experiencing yet for your good and for His glory? Take heart, my friend. Thanks, John.
0: You know, I think we'd agree that forgiveness for what we might consider minor sins is easy to extend. but perhaps not so much those grievous sins. So, what should our response be?
1: Yeah, I, I think that we are called upon by by God, clearly we are, that we should forgive those who have sinned against us. Uh, we should, in the act of doing so, remind ourselves constantly that our sins against God are far greater than the sins that have been done to us. And so, uh, it is with this in mind that we are told to somehow extend or understand our own sin by forgiving those around us and know what grace looks like. It's often a tall order, Uh, we need humility and we need an additional understanding of our own sin in order to accomplish the forgiving of others. It can be done as we go forward in faith.
0: Thanks again, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Life Lessons from King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every single week, we hear stories of listeners drawing closer to the Lord through the teaching of Back to the Bible Canada. Hearing your testimony reminds us that God's word does not return empty, but makes an impact. Heidi wrote, your show was sometimes the one constant that provided an anchor in an otherwise upside down world. Your ministry reaches further than I think you realize. If you have a story to share of how Back to the Bible Canada has helped impact your spiritual walk, please let us know that we're hitting the mark. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, please consider how you might support this ongoing Bible teaching ministry with your financial support. It would mean so much.